Kia ora, ko Anne O'Brien toku ingoa, he kaiorongi o waituhi o tamaki, no mai, haru mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers Festival Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2021 event. Writer and filmmaker Barbara Sumner, author of Tree of Strangers, argues that adoption laws, which continue to deny adopted people access to their own information, treat mothers as dispensable and children as interchangeable. She puts her case. We hope you enjoy it. Inga mana, inga reo, inga iwi, tēnā koutou, nao mai, haere mai, piki mai. Kia koutou te iwi o Ngāti Whātua, kei te mihi, kei te mihi, kei te mihi. Ko Christine O'Brien tōku ingoa, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. Uh, greetings, my name's Christine O'Brien, it's my pleasure to welcome you to this, to this session of Speaker's Corner. Is that better? Great. Thank you. Um, just uh, this session of Speaker's Corner, which is entitled The Crime of Adoption. And uh, just some housekeeping first. I hope that everybody has scanned in, or if you haven't, if you could scan in on the way out or otherwise make a note that you were here. Uh, please feel comfortable wearing a face mask if you're not well. And if you become increasingly unwell, please feel free to, uh, to leave the room. You won't be disturbing. I'm sure the rest of the audience will completely understand. Um, we do ask that you keep your phones on silent, but the festival is extremely happy if you want to share your wonderful experiences on social media. Please just do so with uh, a little consideration for your neighbours. Now, Speaker's Corner runs strictly to time. Those of you who've been before will know that. So the format is that a 20 to 25 minute provocation around a particular idea will be presented to you, and then you will have 10 minutes to question or challenge the speaker's position. Uh, at that point, please no very large statements or manifestos. You can discuss those with the authors afterwards out at the signing table. Uh, short, sharp would be the order of the day. Thank you very much. Right. Gives me very great pleasure to welcome our next speaker, Barbara Sumner. A filmmaker, journalist and writer, Barbara lives in Hawke's Bay. She co-manages Cloud South Pictures, which produced the internationally acclaimed documentary This Way of Life. She is a graduate of the International Institute of Modern Letters. Having grown up an adopted person in a family filled with secrets and lies, she decided at 23 that she must find her mother. Her sad and beautiful account of this journey, Tree of Strangers, published by Massey University Press, is a moving account of her search for the identity that she'd never had. Adoption is so common and has been for such a long time in New Zealand uh, that we, most of us, have connections with an adopted person. However, most adopted people lost their identity without their consent or any legal representation. There is no mechanism for them to reclaim their identities. 98 approaches to change the law over the last 40 years notwithstanding. And despite how common this experience is, this may well be the very first time that we're having this particular conversation in a public setting. Barbara now puts her case on the crime of adoption. She will argue that our laws, which continue to deny adopted people access to their own information, treat mothers as dispensable and children as interchangeable. Please welcome Barbara. 
Kia ora and thank you for having me here. The Crime of Adoption, that's the title the festival has given this session and it's probably not how I would have described it but when I started thinking about that title I realised that actually the laws and practices around adoption are, are actually quite criminal. So first of all I want to start by asking a question. Who here is pro-adoption? Okay, welcome. Um, who thinks that adoption can be a good thing? Good. So when you think about this good thing, do you imagine it's about helping a needy child to experience a loving home? And as a bonus, perhaps helping someone resolve their fertility and, and family building challenges? A two birds, one stone kind of thing. Certainly this is the story we are told over and over in the media, in our families, our laws, and in our social policies. Historically, if you desired a child and, not, and could not fulfill that in the traditional way, and you were heteronormative, of course, you adopted. This was so common that from the inception of the Adoption Act in 1955 until the early 90s, over 91,000 children were acquired for adoption. At our peak, that works out at over 6% of the population. If we were a political party, we'd get a seat in Parliament. <laughs> These numbers tell an important story. Not the story of, a, of maternal indifference, we were told, where thousands of women just blithely gave away their babies. It's as, as if we have our ancient maternal instinct does not even exist. It tells a story of social structures designed to remove children from designated women in order to supply the demand from the infertility community, to reward good Christian married couples, to punish single women for their sexual lives and activities, and in order to enable the nuclear family. Adoption was a state-funded and supported function of the nuclear family. A single mother did not fit that structure. Neither did an infertile, childless married couple. So the resolution was really simple. Just transfer babies from bad mothers to good ones. And voila, the respectable nuclear family. Adoption was essential to uphold the moral codes of the 50s and 60s. It was part of a religio-legal ordering code designed to control the unfettered, unfettered female sexuality. It was used to punish single women for their sexual lives, primarily by disabling them from mothering. And importantly, closed adoption enabled men to remain anonymous and therefore outside of any censure for their sexual liaisons, or, lucky for them, any liability for their out-of-wedlock children. The other upside for men, Adoption secured the orderly devolution of property. It protected their legitimate heirs from illegitimate incursion. Because adoption law is not welfare, it is, in effect, property legislation. But the win-win adoption as a social good narrative is so well ingrained in our society, we barely pause to question it. Just to be clear, this is not about good or bad adopters. No matter how much we might love our adopters or how happy we are with our adoptive status, we are, as one New Zealand judge said, a special class of persons to whom records are denied. The judge might have well have said we are second-class citizens. 
with special laws and rules that govern us our entire lives. So why am I designated a special class of persons? Simply this, my mother had sex outside of marriage. And there were so many good married women and husbands, men and women, who needed babies to make their lives whole. So where does this leave us? We are, as another judge said, adopted children of any age. In other words, infantilized, lifelong children bound by contracts we were the object and subject of, but were not party to. A contract that can never be annulled or discharged. There is no other law like it in this country. No remaining law based on morality, no other law designed to sever a non-consenting person's succession rights and access to knowledge of their origins. There's no other law that makes a non-consenting person the property of another, and no other law that binds a non-consenting person in perpetuity. So what does it take to be pro-adoption? Firstly, adoption is a noun form of the verb adopt, which comes from the Latin verb adoptere, meaning to choose for oneself. But a pre-verbal child cannot choose. For the child, all adoption is forced. So to be pro-adoption, first you must be in favor of the state legally and forcibly severing all ties between a child and her biological family. That's everyone she's connected to from ancestors to grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, siblings, parents, all papa. You have to support the replacement of a non-consenting person's original identity with one allocated by the state. You would have to support the sealing for all time of that non-consenting person's identity to the grave and beyond. You have to be okay with a system that takes advantage of a woman and her baby at the most vulnerable times of their life. You have to believe it is okay to use a permanent solution to resolve that often temporary situation. You have to ignore that there was and still is a massive demand for fresh newborns. Even when money is not exchanged, social demand to meet the needs of the infertile rules the industry and our media. While there are relatively few local adoptions in New Zealand today, those 90,000 plus people are still living as second-class citizens. And every person added to the list today must live with the same exclusions and limitations as a person born in 1955. To be pro-adoption, you also have to choose to ignore the science around the trauma of mother loss. I go into this to some extent in Tree of Strangers, such as a, nine, a 2016 Stanford University study that showed that a newborn can identify their mother's voice with 97% accuracy. The voice a child hears for nine months ignites critical parts of a child's brain, including the primary auditory cortex, the mesolimbic reward pathway, and other essential networks that enable us to process sounds, emotion, <coughs> and information about the self. The lead author said they had no idea a mother's voice could have such quick access to so many different brain functions. A 2020 study published in the Journal of Neuroimage revealed that during the postpartum pe period, the mother and child's brain operate as a single system. Can I repeat that? 
scientists have discovered that mother, the mother and child dyad is so per powerful that during their shared time of mutual need after birth, their separate brains operate as a single entity. So what if bonding does not begin at birth? Because we're told that as part of adoption, that you can switch a baby and they'll bond with their adopters. What if it doesn't begin at birth? What if it is a continuum of physiological, psychological and spiritual events that begin in utero and continue throughout the postnatal fourth trimester period and beyond? What if when you separate a child from her mother and her entire family, you cause a lifetime of internalized abandonment? To support adoption, you have to not care that maternal loss is indelibly printed on the unconscious mind. This is where the idea of the primal wound comes from. To support even the idea of adoption, you have to believe that mothers are replaceable and interchangeable. So if you're an adopter, you have to convince yourself that the mother of the child in your care willingly gave away her baby and that she and her child are unaffected by this even if you know that you could not give away your natural child. This conditioned indifference to the suffering of designated women and their babies is at the heart of adoption. You have to believe that those children are born as blank slates, even while you are aware that your natural child clearly arrived fully loaded with, or would clearly arrive fully loaded with physical and emotional attributes that link them to your whole family. You have to believe that while it's your right to live your authentic genealogy, the adopted person is not entitled to the same basic human right. For the non-adopted, your kinship continuity is framed as normative, innate, and based on genetic connection. For the adopted and donor-conceived, kinship and identity are communicated through an experimental postmodern notion where identity is presented as a social rather than an innate construct. If you are an adopter, you have to close your eyes to structural inequalities that privilege some women over others. You have to believe that your infertility gives you the right to ignore everything I've just been talking about. Perhaps your belief system makes you feel entitled to take a child from another country in order to save them, or to enculture them in your better world. We call that saviorism. To support adoption, you have to focus on what is gained and not on what is lost. Or if you do acknowledge losses, you have to believe that your perception of the gains and your own gains outweigh those losses. To support adoption, you have to be comfortable with some people living with falsified birth certificates, with adopters named as biological parents, with building family relationships based on dishonesty, evasion, and, yes, exploitation. As a parent myself, I know that none of these attributes, these lies, are likely to create sound, healthy family dynamics. From my perspective as an adopted person, in any other scenario, the delusions required to prop up the adoption constellation would be classified as a mental unwellness. We compound the delusions by declaring that adoption is normal and any problem an adopted person has is their problem rather than adoption in the entire system that supports it being at fault. So this is what we now understand as gaslighting. 
top-down, state-sanctioned, media-endorsed adoption and fertility industry-facilitated industry gaslighting. So if adoption itself is so fraught, if the removal of a child from their mother causes as much damage as the science says it does, how do we take care of children in dire need of care once every avenue to preserve the family is exhausted? Well, we could institute parenting contracts that not, are not about the ownership of the child. We could create other forms of enduring guardianship that do not require the child to forfeit their identity in order to receive the care they deserve. Because when you sever a person and their descendants from their heritage and genealogy, you are punishing that person for the failure of their family circumstances. To my mind, this is a very high pr price to pay for 18 years or so of care. In adoption, we talk in the adoption circles, we talk about identity performance. That's where we learn or are trained to act as if we are the natural child of the adopter, conforming ourselves to their ways, their family, their culture. With enduring guardianship, where the person retains their original identity, including their name, the pressure to perform identity might actually be reduced. With permanent care mechanisms other than adoption, the state, the caregivers, families, and society in general might no longer pretend that there is no, no difference between adopted and natural children. No one would have to act as if they are the natural child, or for that matter, adopters do not have to act as if they are the natural parents. This concept of as if is so entrenched it is written into our current laws. So I have a question I like to ask people who want to adopt. What if, in order to fulfill your desire for a child, you, the adopter, had to change your name to match the child you are planning to take? What if you had to agree to have your previous identity sealed for all time? What if you had to move to the child's town? Or if it's into country adoption, what if you were required to go and live in the child's country? Eat their food, learn their language and culture, and most importantly, give up all your ties to your family, your ancestors, your heritage, and instead graft yourself onto the child's family tree. Would this be too much to ask in return for a child? If you say yes, then how can you expect the child to do all these things? So I think, is it any wonder that society is completely out of touch with the true impact of adoption. What do we do? Change has, has to start with law change. Finally, after 65 years, this is now on the government agenda. I've seen some of the early briefing papers and I have OIAs out to see more. The government is seeking to modernize adoption. Early indications is that they plan to make it easier to adopt especially if you're, you've created a child using third-party gametes and or via a surrogate. Under current law, it is illegal to purchase anonymous gametes and wombs in New Zealand. If you've been paying attention, you might have noticed a significant uptick in positive stories in the media about people going overseas and just doing that. It is these people that are at the forefront of the call to make it easier to adopt. And it does appear that new laws are being designed to make it both easier and legal to create children using anonymous third-party suppliers. 
and especially making it easier for commissioning parents with no genetic or biological connection to the child they create to be credited as the child's birth parents on their birth certificate. Just as we used to do with stranger adoption, in total disregard for the genetic connect connectedness of the person or the child, the, the person acquired or the child created. In these early stages, in laying down the foundations for this legislative change, the Ministry for Justice and their working group are actively shutting out the advice and knowledge of those with lived experience of stranger adoption. The early documents are asking if origins information should be available to the donor conceived. So far, there appears to be no provision to return original identity and to provide birth documents that are not falsified. It would appear that some version of the current law will be transferred to the new law and that needs and wants and that the needs and wants of commissioning parents and adopters will prevail. So yes, there will be a consultation process. It is a democracy, but we will be asked to consult on already established baselines, on encoded and preconceived notions of identity and the transferability of humans that by all indications are being folded into the new legislation. Our experiences will only be taken into account insofar as they do not interfere with the functions and structure of the adoption and fertility industry. Within this context, those adopted or conceived via third-party producers are merely utilities to be exploited. We are to continue in service to those who believe their right to a child is paramount. And when these new laws come into place, you can be assured we will all be told this is in the best interests of the child. But we remain children for such a short time. So, same as it ever was. Thank you so much. Now, if anyone has questions um, for Barbara, please feel free to come up and use the mic here. If there's a queue, please queue around the back of the pillar for health and safety reasons. Obviously, there's a, a great speaker right there. Hello, Barbara. Um, before I ask my question, um, I just want to say um, I'm Jules Angus Burney, and Angus is my birth name. Burney is my adopter's name. And I can't thank you enough for your book, for what you've written, for the voice that you've given to people who have wanted to say what you've said for so long. So I mahi you as, um, as, as having the courage, really, to say yeah. things that you have. My question is, why did you go to court? If you could just maybe give us a summary of why you went all the way through the courts, because that's something that I think is an important part of the journey that we're talking about and what your debate's about. Thank you. Thank you. It's a good question. I went to court because in 1983 I began looking for my mother and I wrote letters that I have now received back through the court access to files that are just, you know, they break my heart. I can barely remember myself like that. And attached to them, uh, and there's written on my letters in pencil um, things that say, tell her we don't know anything. Tell her we don't have anything. And then attached to that is the information I'm seeking. I went to court because everybody has a right to 
to know where they come from and the stories that I was told and many adopted people doesn't actually match the truth of what my mother's experience was, the way in which she was coerced, controlled, um, hidden away in a doctor's, you know, the top floor in the doctor's house, all that kind of performative behavior where she has to satisfy those needs. So, and I discovered things like if I put the, put the information in a timeline, I could see that they had started this process weeks before I was born, that they were trying to get her to sign the, the papers weeks before I was born. That's illegal. It was illegal then, it's illegal now. It's called child trafficking. So I needed to have something solid to begin making myself who I am, making myself up. Because you, as an adopted person, you have no past. To the extent that if you go to birth, deaths and marriages and you pay, I don't know, $25, you, if you're a non-adopted person, can get not only your original birth certificate, of course, but you can get what's called your long-form birth certificate. And it is, it's essentially a piece of paper like this. It has your grandparents and it has all this family information. Adopted people can't, have no right to that. They have no access to that long form. So in my case, both my parents and my grandparents were all British. So under normal circumstances, I would have the ability to get a British passport, for instance. My adopters, had their parents been British, I would have no access to that, to that right. Because adoption is not... You don't inherit the genealogy and the whakapapa and all of that of the, adopted per, of the adopters. You belong entirely just to that couple. Their parents, your grandparents, are not legally your grandparents. So there's issues around that as well. That was a long-winded answer. <laughs> What's your answer to a child who's been born into a very, very abusive situation and who's an absolute drug addict? Mm -hmm. That child has a right to good, healthy care. Mm. And they should, we should have systems that do that. But we have to understand that adoption law is not welfare. It's not a piece of welfare legislation. Mm. It is property law. So that child should not have to lose everything that comes before them. I've been in sessions here where people have been talking about whakapapa and their grandmothers and their great-grandmothers and what we inherit. A, a child born into a dysfunctional situation should not have to lose all of that in order to receive the care they deserve. I, I agree with that, but we do, there's no where, is there, for that child? Well, I think there is. I mean, we just need to start using guardianship rather than adoption, which gives you a false birth certificate. Your adopters are named on, this, on your birth certificate as, as birth parents, even though it says at the bottom of every birth certificate that it is a, it's illegal under the Crimes Act to falsify details. And yet right there you have got this incredibly falsified document. In fact, um, birth, deaths and marriages, I've got it in writing from them, what they say is that your original birth certificate is essentially ornamental, and the second one, that is your legal one, is considered a legal fiction. Where do you sit between those two poles? Thank you. No more questions? Um, 
Oh, I've got a question. <laughs> uh, on the one hand, it's uh, great to hear that the law is finally being um, revised. On the other hand, from what you've said today, uh, not so great in the way that matters are trending. So where can people um, follow the development of the law and perhaps garner information uh, if they're wanting to make a submission on the bill in due course? Will you be posting information anywhere or how will you be communicating with people that are interested in the topic? Um, through social media uh, is the usual way that we do that. But there will be, I'm sure there'll be quite a lot of publicity around it when, we, when they get to the consultation process. So I'm sure if you want to at that point you can um, put in something. We were told um, recently there was a, ch a movement that said we could go to the um, Royal Commission on Abuse and State Care because, my, and I did that, and my argument was that the removing you from your family, um, providing, giving you entirely false identity is an abuse and that the state facilitated. And I got a very good hearing around that. I mean, it was very open and, and warm. And now in the last couple of weeks, they've moved the goalposts and adopted people are no longer able to give evidence. They have to write their story, which to me is a way of, you know, trying to get you to, it's kind of an, an ongoing form of victimization where all they care, all that you're doing is able to tell your story. You're not able to advocate for anything else. Thanks, thanks for a fantastic provocation. I'm just interested if you'd comment on DNA testing. What, what impact is that having on this debate and this discussion? What do you see that causing in the future? That's a great question. Um, well, the genealogy industry is the fastest growing hobby in the world. And, I mean, we're all doing it. I've did my DNA and I found my mother in 1983, so way before DNA. But I found my father three years ago through DNA and it was too late. He was already, he'd already died. But um, it is altering things. But there's two things that go on there. It doesn't change the fact that you are still treated as a second-class citizen. It doesn't change that you have less rights, fewer rights than non-adopted people. And it also brings up the whole issue of reunion, which is for adopted people is really fraught because it's full of the desire to, to connect and belong, but it's never that simple. And I, we mostly we talk about that as reunion porn. There are TV shows, you know, about this stuff. And it, it's... You cannot make up for what you what was lost. It's as hard for the for the mother as it is for the adopted person, as it is for the adopters who have to come to terms with their the change in their status, which they've felt was assured. Hi, Barbara. My name's Craig. Uh, clearly, you and I have had different adoptive experiences. I, too, am an adopted person. Could you accept that everyone who has been adopted um, develops their own meaning around that, in their own relationship to that? Mm-hmm. And therefore, does not, and I do not, see myself as second class just because I happen to be adopted. I'm just as valuable as anyone else. Yeah, I absolutely can see that. And you may not feel it, 
but your legal uh, your ability to legally move in the room in the in the world is what has changed and it doesn't i've said i said in here it doesn't matter how great your adopters are the fact of the matter is is that that a, there are mo most often a st structural inequalities that lead to adoption. Let, you know, poorer women, more wealthy women. Single, you know, we, for me it's a feminist issue in that we so often remove the support that women and babies need. So, I mean, I, I, have, I don't have an issue. If you have a great adoption, it's fantastic. It's, that is great. The issue is, that is not the issue. The issue is that you live with a different set of rules than other people, than non-adopted people. And you have to make your identity up in the, f in the balance of having a different set of rules than other people. So it's really about the law and what rights we have. I believe every person has a right to an authentic identity. Every person has a right to their whakapapa. Every person has a right to their, their original natural identity. Yes. That's a good question around attachment theory. That the question is, why don't we hear about that? We talk about attachment and bonding as if they are the same thing or interchangeable. But bonding is what happens in the womb. And that is the relationship you have. That is a, a, you know, these things that we are now understanding scientifically. They're the connection between the mother and the child. Attachment is what a child does to survive. So you, you know, you've gone through this incredible. It, for the child, when the mother, when you are taken from your mother, it is as if your mother has died. You have suffered this incredible grief. You're pre-verbal, you have no way of expressing it, you have no way of understanding it, so it becomes deeply ingrained within who you are. And then you must attach, otherwise you, and often you've spent days, you know, being bottle-fed, I mean, women, babies were removed from their mothers back in the day, uh, hidden in other parts of the hospital, and uh, to prepare them for adoption was how it was described, which is get them bottle-feeding. So you then, someone comes along and it's a warm pair of arms and you know, they're prepared to love you. You attach with them. But bonding is a neurological, physiological process. Attachment is not. Barbara, I'm Rose. <clears throat> I want to salute you for uh, what is, I think, regarded as a pretty radical stand. Uh, my question relates to the law. Uh, as a family court judge, I often had applications come before me for people who wanted information about where they came from. And their reasons were things like, uh, I want to know if there's some inherited illnesses I should know about. We have an elderly family member who's dying and we, we, we want to, to, um, to know our whakapapa. And every time I had to say, no, I'm sorry, I can't tell you, because that's what the law is. And my question to you is, how did you get to go to court and get information that I wasn't able <laughs> to give people? You must have found a better judge than me. 
and frankly, uh, I'm very glad that you did. What I found was what's called a legal precedent. I hope I'm right, Judge. Um, <laughs> where I, where if you go to court and you say, and you want your files, and you say you want it because you need to know if there's a medical issue in your family, and a judge in 1965 said, no, you're not entitled to that, the law doesn't allow it. If I went now in, 19, in 2000 and, you know, it was three years ago I went, um, I would have been turned down. I would not have been able to use that. So what I had to find was uh, something that had never gone before the courts before. And what I had was I was having an ongoing, awful, ghastly experience with a social worker who just treated me like a second-class citizen, and treated me appallingly. And in one of her, I tried to get... Um, uh, so anyway, I, had, I was just trying to get the trim number of my file, so not even my file, and she wouldn't give it to me. And I asked her why, and she said, the ID you provided doesn't match. And she did this in writing. And what I provided was my adopted birth certificate, which is my legal ID. So I provided that to, to her, and she said, it doesn't match. I said, what do you mean? She said, the date is wrong. I've got a different date in the file. And it was six months and according to that date, I'm six months younger than I think I am. And then my adopter finally gave me a piece of paper, the only one she said she had, which was a, like a discharge notice from Bethany Hospital that had my feeding recipe, cow's milk, water, two tablespoons of brown sugar, two tablespoons of white. Very good. <laughs> and that had another different birth date. So I took those, and that was my, so I took that as my reason. And because nobody had brought exactly this, I was able to, what's called, in law it's called special reasons. And that's a, that's a term that is only encoded in the Adoption Act and has no, has no definition in law. It's up to a judge, any judge, to make a decision on special reasons so long as it hasn't uh, come before them before. Oh, somebody here? I'm afraid we've got no time left, but feel free to talk to Barbara outside. Yeah. So I just want to say thank you so much um, for your generosity in writing the book and sharing your experiences with us uh, and your courage in speaking today and continuing to battle for the things that you see as required in this area against uh, quite large odds, I might add. Um, please join me in thanking Barbara. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2021 Auckland Writers' Festival Waituhi or Tāmaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.